Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Last month, President Trump proposed a 100% tariff on European wines as part of a dispute over aircraft manufacturing subsidies and digital revenue taxes. The move could double the price of wines from France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Germany, and Austria. Ray Isle, the executive wine editor of Food and Wine magazine, has written an article for its current issue titled, Why 2020 is Looking Dangerous for Wine Lovers. In it, he lays out the far-ranging repercussions that this tariff could have. And I'm very pleased to welcome Ray Isle to our show now. Hi. Hi. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me on. First of all, why did President Trump target European wines when uh, the what's at issue uh, is aircraft subsidies and digital revenue taxes? <laughs> yes. What, what did wine do to get you know to get taken down with with the aircraft people? Um, it's especially uh, Boeing. Especially Boeing, which is doing its own job of causing problems for itself. Um, yeah, I don't know if you read the Boeing emails that were released. Those were. Uh, there were internal emails of things like, I wouldn't put my own kid on this plane. <laughs> so, But, um, you know, I think that the reason that the Trump administration focused on on wine and also your other European food products is that, you know, it it's a it, it's both valuable, but it's also a little bit of hitting at cultural heritage and hitting it at, at the at things that are of value to to the to those countries. Um, so it's a little and also, you know, realistically, I think it's probably, you know, things that the Trump base doesn't care that much about, um, possibly. That's, that's well, what have the up. Europeans done uh, specifically? Well, the, the Europeans, I mean, the Europeans, what have they done to incur this? Or yeah. what they, um, Well, you know, the two, so there are actually two separate debates um, or, or, or problems, one of which was um, a proposed French digital tax on internet services. So large internet companies, they, the French wanted to tax some of their revenue from doing business in, in France. Google um, and such. Google, Facebook, you know, um, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that one But that is, doesn't sound fair. Well, it I mean doesn't it doesn't sound fair to 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 tax them or to un, to not to tax them. Um, well taxing Google? Yeah. <laughs> why would you want to do that? <laughs> but but particularly why would you penalize wine for for what Google's doing? Um, mm-hmm. and so that dispute, which was actually solely um a french versus the u.s dispute um and and really was only going to involve french sparkling wine that was settled or at least put off for a year recently um trump and macron came to an agreement about it is that uh, the 25 percent tariff on wines that was imposed last fall that's a separate so that's Ooh. part of the airbus um boeing dispute um so what's we, what's weird is that there's been a bunch of news stories about the Trump Macron agreement, and so everybody's decided, oh well, there are no wine tariffs, we don't have to worry anymore. When in fact, this Trump, this Boeing Airbus dispute is ongoing, um, and that's where the hun- potential hundred percent tariffs come in. Uh-huh. So have our tariffs had any effect on the aerospace and digital markets? <laughs> not that I've seen. Um, you know, I I think you know that there's no question that that Airbus was was getting subsidies that were eventually deemed, you know, not okay by the World Trade Organization. Um, there's been a variety of problems with how Airbus has funded its competitiveness. Um, there are equally the WTO is looking at, at some of what Boeing does. Um, none of this has a thing to do with wine, you know, um, or with, or actually because this 100% tariff, that's, which is potentially going to be decided as soon as February 14th, would also affect cheese, olive oil, Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It, it, even the things like axes and bill hooks, um, which is very strange. And were they also done in retaliation for the EU tariffs? Yeah. Well, so they were. So the cheese, cheese, 
cheese, absolutely. Um, you know, if you like Parmigiano Reggiano, and if you <laughs> like really good ol- olive oil, olive oil, yeah. And you know, the, the essentially what's going on is it's a it's a game of chicken to some degree. The, the Trump administration is proposing these tariffs in retaliation for the the Airbus illegal Airbus subsidies. Um, ideally, what happens, you know. If you're looking at it from an administration point of view, ideally the Europe backs down and 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 then the tar- tariffs don't have to go into effect, um, more or less. Um, the problem is that there, it's unclear whether that's going to happen. Um, then the tariffs do go into effect, and the 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 big problem with the with the tariffs is not actually is that they rebound onto U.S. businesses and they rebound onto U.S. jobs because the you know when you look at wine in the U.S., we drink about 65% domestic wine, most of it California. And about thirty-five percent is European, and that's a, that's a multi-billion-dollar amount of wine coming into the country, um, which is then, you know, which then the the value of the wine coming into the country is then increased as it goes through the, you know, wholesaler to retailer to customer chain. Um, the tariffs are actually instituted; you have to pay the tariff when it arrives in a U.S. port. But the, but doesn't President Trump say the Europeans will be paying the tariffs? Well, he li- he does say that, and he said that about the China Chinese tariffs too. But the but but the truth is, the actual payment of the tariff on the on the shipment is right when it arrives in the U.S. port, so the and the importer, importer pays it, um, and so that's where it starts to become really problematic for U.S. businesses. And then they have to pass that along to their wholesalers, who pass it on to the retailers, and who ultimately pass it to us, to the customer. Yeah, and the. The particular downside of that is that one possibility is prices of European wine increase by 100%. The other possibility is they just, I mean, and this is what a lot of importers are doing, they're just not bringing in a lot of European wine, which then slows down sales, leads to, you know, layoffs. Um, it's a big, it's a big, it's a potentially a giant problem. In reality, will it hurt European winemakers more than American buyers? You know, I think it's, Europe sells about... Or I mean, American businesses. American businesses. I think, I think in the end... It'll, it was not going to help European wineries for sure, but Europe sells about fifteen percent of its wine to the U.S. Um, the, the bigger wineries particularly can pivot, I think, to other markets. The you know, Chinese market is growing very rapidly. We're effectively locked out of the Chinese market right now because of, of tariffs that China has on U.S. wines, <laughs> so you know of, of like ninety three percent. And so it's it's a it's a kind of sticky ball of problems, but there's there's no question it's going to be. If that 100% tariff happens, it will be very bad for a lot of people in the wine business. We keep on thinking France, but uh, the France is the third largest producer of wines. Italy, uh, Spain is number one. Italy two. Is, France number three. The United States number four. Yeah. So um, yeah. So it, people tend to think of it as a as a French thing, and I think that's a little bit because of the digital tax. Um, this will be Italian wine. Well, I mean, this will be Italian wine. It'll be Italian cheese. It'll be you know. Um, German, imported German schnitzel. I don't, you know what else? Um, you know, I it definitely Irish whiskey. Um, you know, uh, Scotch whiskey. Uh, you know, it it, it goes but on. Why and Scotch? On. Scotch. England is Brexit. Well, actually, I I should I should say now that Brexit has gone through, I'm not 100 percent sure about the Scotch mm-hmm. part, but Irish whiskey will be. You know, uh, will be tariffed. Um, and yeah, I, I I mean Brexit is its own <laughs> crazy you know big can of worms. Um, so. You know, it's it is funny. People do think of French. I think France because it it has the biggest image, and it's where we think of of the great, you know, so the the Ur wines, the greatest, you know, defining wines of the world is coming from. But but in truth, yes, Spain and Italy do produce more. 
I understand that a lot of importers have absorbed the 25% tariffs and raised prices only minimally. Uh, that might be a bit more difficult if it went up to 100%. Yeah, it, it'll be much more difficult if it goes up to 100 and it's even difficult to sustain 25%. I've talked to a lot of wine importers, and they the, the feeling was kind of like, essentially don't raise the prices or, or avoid raising prices as much as you can because once you do that, you start to lose placements in stores and placements in restaurants and so yeah, on. Yeah, bars and restaurants. Yeah, and... And so the, there was sort of holding, taking a loss on profits in order to see if this would go away. And the, the 25% tariff, which was instituted in October, has not gone away. And it kind of killed a lot of fourth quarter profits for those folks. So um, so it's a really it's really tough. Even with the 25%, it's a really tough thing for U.S. businesses that import European wine. And I've read that the United States currently imports something like $4 billion worth of wine from Europe every year. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that would... Uh, be diminished considerably uh, and uh, also have an impact on a wide range of businesses up and down the line. Absolutely. Well, when you think about that $4 billion, it's a $4.3 billion or so, you know, then that, that's, the, that's the value of the wine that enters the U.S. But then in terms of revenue, that escalates as it goes up the supply chain. So it's, you know, it's $4.3 billion or whatever when it hits the docks in the U.S., which then turns into about $6 billion as it goes to wholesalers. It turns into you know, $10 billion when it goes to retailers. And then when you, in terms of actual sales, it goes to customers. It ends up being you know, $14 or $15 billion. Even looking at just sales tax revenue loss is quite, is quite something. You know, so it's going to hit you know, <laughs> the New York state budget, I guess. <laughs> well, we have to think about the shippers and yep. the, the ships that they come on and, and then the, yep. the, the, the trucks that – that drive them around, and the the, the yeah. warehouses, the, the warehouse guys that that move the wine around, the you know the and also the you know uh, like you know Burgundy Wine Company on Twenty Sixth Street in Manhattan. You know, it's it's like their their business is Burgundy. Mm-hmm. You know, what what do they do when when all of their wines go up by a hundred percent? That's a that's a that's a small you know you family owned U.S. business. It's a well, some wealthier people might be willing and able to pay increased prices for favorite European wines, but I imagine many Americans will just look to domestic wines, maybe wines from South America, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that, I mean, there'll be some wine to come in and, and fill that gap. And the, the two but things- Will those prices be raised as well? Well, so some be more demand. Some that's some U.S. wineries have been thinking hmm, this is an opportunity to raise prices a little bit. Um, I've definitely gotten emails from you know importers who work with Chilean wines saying, "I believe there might be a rosé shortage this spring. Can we help you out?" Okay. <laughs> um, but it's you know it, <laughs> at the same time, there's the thing with wine. If you're looking at the kind of the, the the you know commodity level, then people will switch back and forth and they don't mind. But if you're looking at at fine wine, the wines you know that that. We, Chianti Classico or something. It's like switching from Chianti Classico to Napa Valley Cabernet is not what you want to do if you love Chianti Classico. The analogy I always use is like, you know, if, if you if you love, you know, classic rock or something, and suddenly there's no classic rock in the market, and everybody says, well, why don't you switch to, you know, um, avant-garde jazz? A lot of people are going to be like, well, I don't like listening to avant-garde jazz, you know, or vice versa. Um, so, so it's, you know... Wine isn't fungible that way. It isn't. It, you, you can't just exchange one for the other. Uh, was part of the president's motive to give a boost to the American wine industry? You know, I think I I don't think honestly he was thinking. I, I mean, do, do I know his mind? Um, well, the reason I ask, <laughs> yeah, is uh, he has been accused of taking uh, of of breaking the emollients 
Yes, yes. And uh, the president may be a teetotaler, but isn't there a a Trump winery in Charlottesville, Virginia, with Eric as his president? Yes, there is a Trump winery. It's it's outside Charlottesville. Um, It it does seem like there's a conflict of interest there, even though the ownership is in the name of Eric Trump, not in not in Donald Trump's name. Um, whether this is going to help the sale of, of of Trump's Virginia wine seems pretty far fetched. I I I haven't seen it in any shops in New York. It's 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 hard to find outside of the winery. It's you know that's actually kind of a, a an interesting but secondary topic, which is. You know, there's actually a fair amount of wine produced in states that are not California, Oregon, Washington. Um, but it's very hard to sell that like wine outside of, like New York. New York has a great wine business, a great, you know, wine production We have business. four or five different regions. Yeah. We have, I mean, brilliant, you like dry racing, brilliant Riesling out of the Finger Lakes region. It's very difficult to sell it outside of New York because it's, you run into this trap of, if it's a four, if it's inexpensive, like 10 bucks a bottle, then someone in Connecticut, or actually, it's say someone in Texas says, a ten buck a bottle of New York wine. Well, I'll try that. And if you turn it thirty five bucks, then they say thirty five bucks for a New York wine. I'm not going to pay for that. And whereas California is so massive and such a big part of the industry, people will just. And then there are the state ones. laws that uh, affect the ability to buy a wine. New York State has a law, I think, that where you cannot order a wine straight from California. Uh, you uh, so some of the larger California wineries made deals with New York wineries. Uh, so that they could be seen as New York wine. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the the U.S. is fairly crazy in terms of wine and alcohol shipping laws. I mean, you know, there's a reason you can't just buy wine off of Amazon. It's it's regulated state by state by state by state, and every state has its own rules, and they're all weird in their own way. <laughs> now, if you look on Amazon, you'll find Trump wine glasses. Yes, well, I think you will find many branded Trump items on Amazon at a, at a guess. You know. I'm speaking with Ray Isles of Food and Wine magazine. Uh, his article uh, that's inspired us to invite him. Uh, the well, he's written a lot of great articles, but he's he is the executive wine editor at Food and Wine. But the one in the current issue is why 2020 is looking dangerous for wine lovers. This is Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're a listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio uh now uh so uh your article you argue that it will actually hurt the u.s domestic wine industry these tariffs why yeah you know i think that the 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 reason it hurts the u.s wine industry is because the the um potentially hurts the u.s wine industry is because wine you know wine is one is a, a complex industry and one of the things that it has is a kind of mandated middle tier of wholesalers um, which this all comes out of prohibition when they were trying to break up mob control of liquor distribution so there's wholesalers you know that there's wineries and importers who bring wine in or, or make wine then there's a wholesale tier that then that buys from the winery and sells to the to the store or restaurant all of those wholesalers deal with european as well as as domestic wines um and and chilean wines and and anything. So anything that actually, you know, financially damages that wholesale level tier is bad for everybody in, in the wine business, in a sense. You know, it's it, it it's it's not it's not you can't really say that U.S. wineries are insulated from this completely um, because most wine is not sold directly by the winery. It's sold to the wholesale um, wholesalers who then sell it on. And so if they have massive profit loss from losing all these European wines, that's just bad for business as a whole. 
But I was even thinking about the what's going to happen with the the American winemakers. Winemaking is a fairly slow process. You, yeah, you have to grow the grapes, and <laughs> then pick them, <laughs> then make the wine. You have to age it. Uh, you and suddenly, if the demand goes up, you are thinking, where am I going to get more grapes? Yeah, well, it's not it's not like you know Q-tips or something where you suddenly just you know or or, or, or you know staplers where you suddenly make a million more staplers. It, you know, wine's an agricultural product; it's on a yearly cycle. You can't just summon ten million cases of wine from somewhere. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. And like you said, you you harvest the grapes. You know, for red wine, you you make the wine, you keep it for two or three years while it's aging. You release it. Um, I mean, and if you want to plant more vines to build your production, you're looking at then four or five years on top of that. So suddenly summoning a vast amount of wine from somewhere is a very difficult process. It takes a while for wine grapes to actually develop. That's why there are these yeah. old vine wines, because some people think that they're better. Yeah, I mean, vines are... Vines are fascinating because they, you know, they in terms of wine, there's about three years before they produce any grapes that are really worth, you know, turning into wine. And then what happens as they get old is, you know, they, they reach a kind of peak where they're, you know, they say 20 years or 15 to 20 years where they're producing a fair amount of grapes and the quality is very good. But what happens is they get very old. You get these wonderfully intense grapes. But the production level goes down. So, you know, from a farmer's point of view, they're sometimes sitting there thinking, why am I keeping these old vines in the ground? And from a winemaker's point of view, they're like, don't take those old vines out of the ground. They're wonderful, you know. But um, they do, there is an intensity of flavor that comes from old vine fruit that's really kind of remarkable. And the the best European wines generally yep. are old vine wines because they didn't have prohibition. They didn't have to pull up the, the vines. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of planning in the Europe that goes back quite a ways. There's a lot of planning, weirdly, and there's some planning in the U.S., particularly on sandy soil, which is resistant to a pest called phylloxera that, that has been around for quite a while. But Europe, I mean, Europe, which we which we gave to Europe, didn't we? Yes, we did. We <laughs> exported phylloxera <laughs> to Europe. That's really nice of us. <laughs> um, back in the back in the late 1800s, we uh, we effectively, you know. Exported phylloxera to Europe and wiped out their entire wine business. <laughs> so maybe we're trying to do that again. I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't uh, the weather, rainfall, and days of sunshine affect the crop? And then, uh, so the and every year's vintage is different. Um, and then uh, the uh, isn't the amount of wine being produced by French, Spanish, and Italian vineyards already limited because there's more demand for it than they can satisfy? Yeah, the, the, it's a, there is more demand. It, it's interesting. It, it ebbs and flows for exactly that reason. You'll have, you'll have harvests that are huge because of the climate conditions, and then you'll have years that are very, very short you know, or, or scant because of climate conditions. Um, and at the moment, you know, there is a, a lot of demand for European wines around the world. You know, the wine has become a, uh, more and more wine consumption around the world, which is a great thing. Um, so if they lose sales to the United States, uh, they probably will be able to make f up for it to sales to other countries? Eventually. I mean, you know, they, they'll be hurt by it. And there's some wineries in Europe that sell specifically to the U.S., and they'll be, they'll be severely hurt by it. And it's, it's, it's no question it will cause some economic damage, but they do have other countries to pivot to. Um, Whereas if you're a you're an importer of European wines in the U.S., it's very hard for you to suddenly go out and find a hundred new wines from a different country to support your business. Well, you mentioned China. Is China buying more European wines 
than they used to, especially now that they're not buying American wines? Yes, very much so. I mean, China's a, a very rapidly growing wine market. And they don't grow their own wines? Well, they they're actually, just starting to? They, I mean, are, they had rice wine. They, are, they have rice wines, and they're starting to grow. They're not just starting to grow. They're growing an enormous amount of grapes, and they're sort of predicted to become the biggest wine grape producer in the world. It's almost entirely sold internally, and it almost all goes into very, very inexpensive wines. Um, the but there as an import market, um, they're they're growing very rapidly. They do a lot of business with Australia. They do a lot of business with Europe. And at the moment, they're not doing much business with the U.S. because of did other trade disputes. Well, they imposed high tariffs on American wines in retaliation for the president's tariffs on Chinese imports. Absolutely. And but the, do the trade talks continue? I never know <laughs> on any given day whether there's a there's a new tariff or the tariff has been taken away. It, it is. It is very hard to track. It, there's a lot of spin on it too, so it's you know it's it's hard to know what it, when you hear news stories or or you hear announcements from the administration. It's very hard to sort out what's real and what's not. Um, you know, I, and I think one of the worries the U.S. actually sells wine to Europe as well, of course. And I think one of the justifiable worries for the wineries that sell to Europe is that if these tariffs go through, then Europe will retaliate with tariffs on U.S. wines, which is additional damage to the market. So, you know, I don't I'm you know, uh, tariffs. Uh, there are people like Robert Lighthizer, the you know the, the trade commissioner for the U.S., who's kind of the deciding voice on these, who believe tariffs are a good way to do, you know, to negotiate in uh, international you know, economic realms. Um, there are a lot of people who feel that tariffs are a bad idea, and you just get into an ongoing war of of you know tit for tat tariffs. And um, I'm not an economist. Um, well, the president said he loves tariffs. He so, does. But the love Republican tariffs. Party used to hate tariffs. Yeah, they. I mean, the Republican Party has historically been anti-tariff and pro-free trade, um, and perhaps uh, you so, know. So it, is he changing the Republican Party? Well, let's I, see. I know you're not is, here is, to talk is he politics. changing the, <laughs> the Republican Party? I don't know. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> you know. Yeah. This is not really a. So one of the key things for me is that but politics uh, comes into everything, doesn't it? Politics comes into everything, but I actually do think that wine. Um, is not it doesn't divide to left and right or, or red state and blue state. I mean, there are I guarantee you there are plenty of you know big time Republican donors who have big sellers full of European wine. There are Republican voters who like to drink wine. There are Democrats who like to drink wine. It's you know wine is a universal pleasure. It's uh you know it's drunk by peasants and kings. It's um, it's fermented grape juice that everybody happens to love. <laughs> so well, not everybody. Well, not everybody. Okay, fine. Yeah, not everybody. But I you know. I'm, I have a friend who lives in wine country of Oregon, mm -hmm. and he drinks beer. Well, I I admire his kind of you know contrarian point of view. He's been drinking beer before he moved to Oregon. Yeah, well, there's some there's some very good craft breweries in Oregon too. Um, yeah, I you know I I do think that the that it it really isn't a political question. This this kind of issue of wine and damage to wine it's like a lot of people love wine and a lot of people on both sides love wine so um you know so I, I try and avoid the you know turning it into too much of a partisan issue i just as i i open this by asking why wine when we're talking about uh aircraft subsidies and digital revenue taxes aren't there so many other areas that that Tariffs could have been imposed. Well, aircraft, <laughs> for instance. I mean, well, the, 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 I think. Do the, we buy air? Does the, do American airlines buy a lot of Airbuses? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a, you know, American companies buy Airbuses. I think probably, you know, the aerospace industry, the air, 
and so on is much bigger than the wine business by a lot. So I'm sure there's some internal consideration of not damaging big U.S. companies like Boeing, um, you know, in, in possible trade war situations. Um, I, I mean, I if I had a, a crystal ball that would tell me why they chose wine, I would be curious to know. But um, at a guess, the political blowback for the administration is minor, and the potential kind of like political problems in Europe of tariffing wine are high. Um, and and additionally, it's you know it's something they can slap a tariff on and not worry about as they're feeling. I personally worry about it a lot. It just seems to me that uh, if you look at the way business has developed over the last uh, 20, 30 years, uh, it's become much more international. American mm-hmm. companies often have offices in Europe to save mon- uh, tax monies here. So all of this just seems to me to be very old-fashioned. Well, it is extremely old-fashioned. I mean, the, the world is much more um, – I mean, look at – Look at the information economy, which is clearly global. Exactly. I mean, with some countries, yeah, I think North Korea. It's not as global, but, yeah, but you know. China has a has its own major uh, version of, of Facebook and, and Google. And Absolutely, all. and information travels around the world, you know, rapidly. And supply chains are very international too. I mean, I thought one of the amusing, or that's not really amusing because it's a problem, but you know. Harley Davidson will actually, you know, as American as they get, will be impacted by this because motorcycle parts are actually one thing that might be end up under this hundred percent tariff, and that includes they, they, you know, they work with an Italian company on aspects of their of their, uh, you know, transmission, um, and so it's it's very hard to, you know, in this world we live in, to just extract yourself from all sorts of influences from around the globe. Well, you've written that your magazine, Food and Wine, may also be affected because a lot of your advertising comes from Absolutely. wine sellers and producers. Yeah, I mean, we have advertising. You know, we have advertising from you know Italian prosecco producers. We have advertising from California wineries. Um, if prosecco drops out of the U.S. market because you know suddenly your twelve dollar bottle of prosecco is twenty five, which is a steep price to pay for a bottle of prosecco. Prosecco is one of the cheapest. Oh, this is the cheapest of the bubbly it's wines. It's one of the cheapest of the bubbly wines. And and uh, and a lovely fun drink, you know, but at 25 or 26 bucks it starts to make you wonder. And you know, so if they pull out of the US market and pull out their advertising, that's a blow for us as a magazine, you know. Um, but won't won't the their the space just be taken up by other producers, winemakers from Chile, Argentina, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand and the like? Well, I think, you know, I I'm sure that they Canada? Canada. Well, can it's weird. Now, um, Mexico makes a lot of beers, uh, wines, and yet you don't. You only get them in Mexico. Yeah, and the Baja, the pretty Baja, nice wines. They are nice wines, and there's some great restaurants down there. Um, oddly, Canada and Mexico ba- both make wine. Canada makes some wonderful wines too. You rarely see them in the U.S. market, um, and it's it's a weirdly it's easier for me to get a Slovenian wine than a Canadian wine. Go figure. You know, again, sort of weird trade situations. You know, there's no yeah, because question. Because Trudeau's name is is a French name. That's possibly it. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, it's there will certainly be some you know, picking up the slack or filling in of the market by by wineries that are in in Chile or South Africa or Australia. But again, it goes back to that. You know, um, there's no, you know, there's no real replacement for a Cote de Rhone from somewhere else. A Cote de Rhone is from the Rhone. Um, if you love Barolo, and I know a lot of people love Barolo, you can't get a 
Barolo anywhere else. This is because of the whole, but even if it's the same kind of thing, uh, uh, let's say people order a Chardonnay or, right. or a Cabernet Sauvignon or Sauvignon Blanc or whatever, uh, it's different everywhere. The French have this concept, terroir. Yes. Which has to do with climate and soil. So the same grape may be grown in different places and create and produce wines that have little in common. Absolutely. Very, very different. I mean, you know, if you, if you take a, uh, you know, a Chardonnay from, from Napa Valley in California and you take a Chardonnay, which is the grape of white Burgundy from, from Chablis in Burgundy, and you taste them side by side, um, you'll see that the, the Napa Valley wine is richer and rich and big and high, much higher alcohol and much fruitier. The Chablis is, is you know, s- sort of minerally and intense and, and um, crisp. And, and that all has to do with the, the climate. I mean, Napa's far warmer and more sunny than, than Chablis is. has to do with the soil. Chablis is on a kind of a, a chalk soil. Napa's in a completely different soil. And grapevines have this magical, truly somewhat magical ability to translate the specifics of where they're grown into the wine. Even when the grape is grown in different regions of the same country. Yes, absolutely. You, you can get uh, wines with the same grape from all over France and from all over the United States. A, a Long Island wine... Uh, Cabernet or Sauvignon Blanc will taste very different from one from Napa, and w- again, very different from something from Washington State. Absolutely, it's and and even down to the even level Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah, Charlottesville, Virginia. The, the Trump one will taste different than all the other wines, but it, even down to the level of of you know seventy five feet of difference between a vineyard. You know, if you look at the, I mean, the or the originating place for the idea of terroir is Burgundy in France, and if you look at you know vineyards in Von Romanet, if you, you know, wines from a great producer, which may come from vineyards that are really, a, literally a stone's throw from one another, a really top sommelier can, can t- smell those wines blind and tell the difference between them. And, and it's, it's an, it's a question of nuance. It's not like, you know, one's blue and the other's green. It's, you know, it's, it's, um it's very fine tuned differences, but it, they are actually different from one another because one is grown on a slightly higher elevation or i guess more sunlight or uh they're they're grown closer some vines are grown closer together than others yeah it may be you know maybe slightly higher up the the slope um you know in the cote d'or it may be a slightly different angle to the sun slightly different um so you know compactness so that the drainage is different it um it's really remarkable how 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 these differences are, are are translated into a liquid in a glass, which is a, a you know a very odd thing, <laughs> um, kind of wonderful. Um, You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM. We are listener sponsored non commercial radio. They singing all night, drinking wine, spooty ooty, drinking wine. Wine, spooty ooty, drinking wine. Wine, spooty ooty, drinking wine. Pass it bottle me. You buy it by the gallon and buy it by the quart. Buy a blackberry, you're doing things smart. Knocking out windows and tearing down doors. Drunk, 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 keep a screaming for more. Drinking wine, spooty ooty, drinking wine. 
This is Ray Isle, who is the executive wine editor of Food and Wine magazine, and uh, he's written an article for the current issue of that magazine, Why 2020 is Looking Dangerous for Wine Lovers. Uh, perhaps we should take a look at how wine is sold in this country. Aren't wine producers both here and abroad mostly small family businesses? Yeah, most. I mean, the vast majority, if you look at, if you look at numbers, are small family businesses. Um, if you look at, at percentage of the market, there are a few big companies that sell, especially at the affordable level, sell much of the wine that are in, that's in grocery stores. I mean, Gallo has, mm-hmm. a, Gallo owns 75 different brands and sells a vast amount of wine, but there are thousands of wineries in the world. And, you know, there's 5,500 in California alone. There's that, there's more in Italy and they're mostly, they're small, they're agricultural, they're family owned. And so the, they, rather than trying to sell it themselves, they rely on distributors and wholesalers to correct their wines. yeah so the way the way it works is basically you either have a winery in the US or you have um, a winery in Europe let's say in in the winery in Europe will then sell to an importer um, here in the US the importer in the US or the winery in the US will then sell to a wholesaler a distributor um, and that's the the conduit through which the wine gets to retail stores and restaurants um, uh, do, do they tend to be small businesses as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's particularly, you know, I mean, something like Costco is not a small business and they sell an enormous amount of wine. But restaurants particularly tend to be individually owned, you know, small businesses that operate on a very, very narrow margin. I mean, it's, you know, open, having worked for food and wine a long time, I've learned a couple of things. One is I don't want to open a restaurant because it's a terrifying prospect. It's really hard to make a living doing that. But if you're a distributor, for example, a wholesaler, and you lose half of your traditional wine supply, you're going to scramble. You have to scramble to, to find new suppliers. Yeah, you're going to have to scramble to find new suppliers. And one tricky thing about that is that the most the way the wine wholesale business is set up, a winery only has a relationship with one wholesaler. It's a you're kind of married till you die, more or less. And and so if you're wholesaler A and you lose half of your of your brands, you can't just reach out to a random California winery and say, I, well, I, want, to, I want to wholesale you now because they already have a relationship with wholesaler B and they're stuck in that one. And so there's not an endless, you know, an infinitude of wineries in the world. So I would assume that every winery that is selling wine right now has some kind of a deal. Exactly. I mean, almost every winery. There's a few, you know, super high-end California wines that sell only to a mailing list and that kind of thing. And there, there was a recent op-ed in the New York Times by Jenny Lefcourt, a wine yeah. importer. She wrote that Trump wants to punish Europe, but thousands of American businesses will suffer instead. And she worries that her business, which she began 20 years ago, uh, may have to close if the tariffs take effect. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know Ginny. Um, Ginny and Francois Selections, um, they import, you know, a category of wine that's called natural wine, very low, you know, organic, no, no, you know, as little human intervention as possible, kind of fascinating subset of the wine world. It's the growing wine world. It is the growing, it's growing wine growing world. subset because many people are thinking organic. They don't want to have yep. pesticides in their wine. And they want to know where, and they also want to know where it comes from. Wine, wine, I find that wine trends often track after food trends. And, and if you look, you know, 10 years back, you start to see, you know, it's when you start to see all these farms listed on restaurant menus and you start to 
so much interest in kind of origin of food and what's been done to it and whether you, you know, you know, where the origins of the seeds and so on. That's happening to wine now in the same way. And we recently had a call-in show and people were concerned about uh, if they were vegans, for example, they want yeah. to make sure that the, the wine uh, was okay for a vegan to drink or uh, whether uh, wine was how they, you knew whether a wine was organic or uh, or done in some way that uh, would be healthier than some of the other wines. Are they are the labels all uh, well, the lab- pretty clear? Yeah, no, wine labels are actually fairly opaque. <laughs> they they the the deal is that wine is regulated by um by the, you know, Bureau of Tobacco and 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 alcohol um and not by the FDA. So food labeling laws don't apply to wine. So you don't have ingredient lists on wine. Um Additionally, every country has its own definition of what, you know, of sort of organic certification. And, and, and so that plays a role, too. So it's actually quite confusing knowing whether, you know, you have to. So you, how do you know? Well, um, you look on the winery website. You have to, you have to you know, believe. I go them. to a wine shop. I'm <laughs> not going to go look at a winery a website. I'm going to look at the price yeah. and what it says on the label. Well, you look at the. I mean, typically, if someone is working in a way that's organic or biodynamic or you know, is in, in that zone, they're going to put it on the label because mm-hmm. they want people to know. Biodynamic um, is even better than organic. Biodynamic is a. F- <laughs> biodynamics interesting. Biodynamics a form of organic. Um, viticulture or, or actually farming that looks at the the farm as a kind of an ecological whole so the you know the both the vines in the ground and the life of the soil and the birds in the air and the, mm-hmm. and the insects are all one kind of organism and it's it comes out of it comes out of a german philosopher rudolf steiner who was the same guy who came up with the waldorf school concept he's a very odd his writings are very strange but there are Steiner schools right here in, in yep, New York. Absolutely. Um, but the but the baseline idea, which is that you know all of these aspects of a farm interact with one another, and you can't really separate you know the the microbial life in the soil from the health mm-hmm. of the vine, from the health of the pe- the, the pest eating birds, and so on. That that makes a lot of sense. And so it's a it's a fascinating form of agriculture, very labor intensive, involves a little bit of weird, slightly spiritual you know aspects. That, a lot of astral forces and whatnot, but but pretty much anybody who's organic is going to put it on the label because um, they want you to know. Um, and it's just that the, the regulatory aspects are, are very vague. And you know, there's also with commercial wine production, there's a lot of like like industrial massive wine production. So when you look at you know big affordable brands that are in every single store everywhere and produce millions of cases, there are a lot of you know enzymes and and manufactured yeasts and and uh products like mega purple which is a a color intensifier and flavor intensifier which is a super concentrated form of grape juice you know that go into some of these wines that you might personally rather not you know or at least you would like to know if it's involved i mean i i admit to having a bias towards small family farms who produce you know where i can see the origin you know, see the nature of the origin. And I get the feeling that most people who go into the wine business, uh, either as wine producers or importers, do it because they, they love the product. It is it is one of, I mean, I, I you know, I work for a magazine, but I think of myself as being in the wine business because that's really what I write about is wine. And Somebody term, else writes about the food? Someone else writes about the food. I, we, we do kind of tie it together now and then. It's food and wine. But, um, but 
it's um the wine business is full of is a remarkable business to be in because it is full of it, the basic qualifier for it which is what you said is people really love wine who are in the wine business and they tend to be social and actually enjoy drinking wine and hanging out together and so it's i i mean i always think i'm i'm happy i don't you know i'm not involved in you know industrial steel production or something where i might not feel as close a kinship to my product um and certainly couldn't have had as much fun with it we mentioned earlier that in addition to winemakers, distributors, and importers, there are also, of course, wine stores, bars, restaurants that sell wine. In restaurants, aren't most of the profits made on the sale of wine, beer, and other alcohol rather than the food? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the So um, how will this new tariff affect us? <laughs> that's not going to be good, and especially if you – I mean, if you, again, it goes back to that thing about wine not really being – you know, you can't just replace one with the other. If you're a French bistro and you suddenly switch to all Chilean wines – it, it's kind of odd, you know, it, it looks weird on your wine list. I mean, people will buy them because they want some wine to drink, but but it, it doesn't make any sense in the context of the restaurant. And restaurants do operate on very low food margin, food profit margins, and so they make up, they make their profitability on beverage sales for the most part. Um, and, and the you know, liquor, in fact, is hugely profitable. Um, you know, your cocktails make you a ton of profit. Um, wine and beer makes you more some profit. Um, it used to be bottled water was a huge profit center too because it cost nothing and they charge you eight bucks for a thing of Pellegrino. But a lot of restaurants have switched to filtered water from the premises. Um, and food has always been food's margins are razor razor thin. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to hurt a lot of restaurants. Um, it's a uh, it's going to hurt a lot of restaurants. It's going to hurt a lot of you know. There's been a movement in wine shops to you know there are more. I guess you'd say sort of like specialized wine shops that focus on organic wines or focus on, you know, the wines of only on the wines of Spain or on the, on the wines of, um, you know, sort of Southern France or something. And, and if that's your focus and that's your audience and that's what people come to you for, you've got a real problem if you can't get that into the country anymore. Um, are wine and liquor stores among the few retail businesses that haven't been completely replaced by online retailers? Yeah, in fact, it, it, because there's so many rules against shipping, um, you know, across state lines, um, wine and wine and liquor retail is still very much a bricks and mortar business. It's um, it's one of the few remaining that's that's kind of you know structured that way. And and I and, you know and also I mean a lot of wine is sold in in supermarkets and so on. But I I. I I'm, not in New York. Not in New York. <laughs> no, that's, we have real different laws. Every every place has its own laws. New York. And laws. then if you go to Pennsylvania, yeah. it's even worse. And Pennsylvania, it's all sold by the government. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, it's by the, the government sells all the all of the, the, the alcoholic beverages the, there. The state um, the state stores in Pennsylvania sell. I think they shifted recently where there's some sales in in grocery stores, but hmm. but yeah, but you know, I I'm a big fan of the small wine shop with where you go in and you talk to someone who actually knows the product they've got there and can tell you something about it. And, you know, it's, it's great fun. Um, and people like to walk through a wine shop and pull off a bottle and look at the label and then, um, yeah, yeah. I, I always think of it as it, it, to compare it to an industry that has been sort of disrupted deeply by online sales. I, I think of small wine shops as being a lot like independent bookstores. You know, and there was that wonderful sense of walking into a bookstore and, mm -hmm. and just nosing around and then maybe talking to the person, the, what they'd read recently behind the counter. And, and independent bookstores have been hit, hit extremely hard by online sales, obviously. There have been a lot of closures, and there are not that many left. Wine shops are still the way that independent bookstores used to be. 
Is that because the laws prevent you from buying wine online? The laws prevent you often from shipping it across state lines. So every state has its own laws about that, but there are many states that you can't, yeah. like, there's no, so there's no national, you know. As I mentioned earlier, yeah. New York State has laws about that. New York State has laws about that. You know, um, Alabama has laws about that. Kansas has laws about that. New Jersey has laws about it. Um, that, I mean, there's about 13 states that are pretty open to shipping, which is one of which is California. But that's one reason why there's no massive online sale of alcohol it's also regulated by age too you know it, it you would have to have adult signatures for everything you mm -hmm. shift and so on i'm speaking with ray isles uh, ray isle i-s-l-e executive wine editor of food and wine magazine we're talking about uh the uh the proposed tariffs on wine and related subjects um and the impact it's have it will have on all sorts of people you don't normally think about well you know you think about Okay, the, the winemaker, and you think about the person who's selling the wine, but um, I, I was thinking about the shipping companies that bring the wines from Europe. Will they be affected? Yeah, uh, I mean— Are they a specialized sector of the shipping industry because glass bottles are fragile? They're not—they're specialized—the um, specialized aspect is tends to be refrigerated shipping. Mm -hmm. um, so, so temperature Temperature is control is hugely important, and—, and, and you know. Tariff questions aside, we're we're kind of in a much better age for wine shipping than we once were. You used to get a lot of heat damaged bottles that hadn't been shipped temperature control. You know, we're talking like fifteen twenty years ago, and now most wine that you run into has been shipped with, or most good wine has been shipped with temperature control. And um, I, shipping companies are so big and deal with so much product. I don't know if they'll be damaged by it, but certainly like you know warehouse guys who deal or work in warehouses with that are full of wine. You know. The guys who do delivery runs for, for small importers, you know, I, I, you know, saw a guy, uh, you know, down the street from me just this morning outside a store, you know, unloading a truck. Truck was full of, you know, boxes going to a wine to liquor store, wine store. Truck was full of boxes of wine from Italy and France and Spain, and that guy's, you know, loading up a hand truck and taking them in. And it's like, you just start to think of those boxes disappearing. That guy's job starts to disappear too. Mm. It's kind of scary. You mentioned also that there are some. Wines that people just prefer, like some people will prefer a Cote de Rhone or a Rioja or a Montepulciano, yeah. a German Riesling, or an Austrian or Riesling, an Austrian Riesling. I mean, or a Grüneveltliner. <laughs> you uh, may prefer through. all Riesling. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. You know, you love wine. You know, are there wines that you you gravitate to? Um, yeah, yeah, but. Um, Price is always a consideration right. for me, and that's going to be uh, it's gonna a be, serious issue here. It's going to be a serious issue. And, you know, I, I should preface – it's not a preface at this point we've been talking for a while, but, you know, I mean, I love California wines too, and I write about them a lot. And, I you know, I think the U.S. – you know, the U.S. has a great story of going from being a country that was not really recognized as creating world-class wines, and now there's – Absolutely no argument that U.S., you know, California, Washington, Oregon produced some of the great, greatest wines in the world. But and now Long Island has suddenly uh, Long Island has. Got, it, it took a while because it takes a while for a wine industry to to develop. I guess the the, the vines have to be aged. The vines have to be aged. You have to. I mean, you have to uproot all the potato plants that were there before. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, it's uh, potato plants. But it's a root vegetable. I don't know what you, you uproot the roots. Um, but it's a. Uh, yeah, and you know, and and just as a as a 
consumer, you know, I and, and this is partly about, you know, it's, additionally, it's what I write about. I mean, I have a column coming up that's about Spanish white wines. I think there are some amazing wines that are, you know, everybody thinks of Spanish wines as red. There are beautiful white wines in Spain. I'm thrilled to do a column on it. But if they aren't into the country, it's very hard to do a column. And then there are some people who really love Portuguese white wines. Absolutely. Portugal's a underrated Yeah, wine that's region. a country that doesn't normally come to mind when you talk about wine, and yet it's producing some pretty terrific wines. Yeah. Portugal's a—I mean, and por- I mean, tariffs aside, Portugal Portuguese wines are a steal right now. You can get some brilliant wines for 10 or $12. Um, and additionally, should you be traveling, Lisbon is a really fun town. Um, but— uh, I mean, you know, a lot of what I do for food wine, because we have a very big consumer audience, is I, I don't I don't write that much about super expensive wines. I write about wines that are, you know, 20 bucks and under. And that's and and I didn't grow up drinking wine. I grew up, you know, in Texas in a family with beer and whiskey. Was they do make it. wine in Texas. They do make wine in Texas. But, I, you know, I've always hung on to that joy of finding like a 12 buck bottle of wine that blows your socks off. And. And that's what I love writing about. And so I'd hate to, like, lose some of those, you know, because that's, that's, the, that's the content of what I do. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's such, a, such a pleasure to come across that, that bottle. But uh, f- unless you really know a lot, it can become complicated. You might love a certain wine that you bought, and then you buy that same wine again, and it doesn't taste the same, and it may be just because of the way it was stored, or maybe because the the other one was from 2016 and this one is from 2017. Well, this is absolutely true, and it changes with the vintage. It also changes with you. I mean, I you know when I do wine 101 classes and so on, I you know there's you know this, this classic thing is you have a bottle of you know rosé and you're in Provence and you're with your you know you with your fiance and you're walking on the you know walking along a country lane and you get to your little hotel and you have this bottle of rosé. It's the best rosé you've ever had in your life, and then you go upstairs and there you go and then you come down and then like six years later you're in a you know a, a cheap restaurant on the side of the road in new jersey you know and you order a bottle of the same rosé and you just come from your divorce lawyer's you know <laughs> office and you think this thing tastes like dust and ashes this is the worst rosé in the world and and that's an exaggeration but you know you change as well and the context of what we drink wine you know, you know who we're with how we feel all plays into flavor and then there are people who are really concerned about wine pairings you've got to have this kind of wine yeah. with this kind of food and others say no just have the wine you like yeah i you know i i'm a i mean i do wine pairings in the magazine so i can't can't criticize them completely i i do think baseline wine goes better with food than almost anything else we drink with food i mean certainly better than milk. does it help digestion it helps digestion it's you know red wine is good for your arteries apparently um but you know milk coca-cola uh you know, water. I, I wine by its nature goes well with food. I find that the kind of specifics about pairing, like saying, you know, well, we have a, you know, a, a, a you know, piece of sea bass with a little lemongrass on it, and a little, you know, um, cilantro oil, you know, um, and we were going to pair it with a, a 2017 Pinot, you know, Gris from hereabouts. Is it's kind of the province of of sommeliers in restaurants where they're in a controlled environment. They can look at the chef's dish and say. I have 600 wines on this list, and I can find the perfect wine to go with that dish. At home— And you recommend it to and, the, the people who are thinking of, of yeah. wine to order. Yeah, and then they really do have a wonderful experience. But at home, I mean, <laughs> unless you want to live that way, I think it's much more fun to just kind of play it by ear. And if you—I would say if you're having a dinner party and you're worried about what wine to pour, you know, think about what you're making and, 
open a couple of bottles of wine before the dinner, dinner party starts and taste one, taste the other. And the, the, the second one will be good the next day. You can drink it the next day. Do you recommend getting larger bottles of wine if you're having a dinner party? I love magnums at dinner parties. I think big big bottles at dinner parties are really fun. Um, and it, they have such an, an awe effect. People are like, oh, big, you know, wow, that looks great. I mean, it doesn't have to be expensive, too. I, I uh, was at a family gathering on on a beach and brought up like a three liter bottle of, of, uh, of rosé, which is, you know, it wasn't an expensive bottle. It's just really big. And everybody was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a big bottle. It looks cool. Okay. So we're, we're almost out of time, but, um, just to wrap up, president Trump announced this 100% tariff last month, but it hasn't taken effect yet. Uh, what's his current status? Is there been some pushback from, people at least quietly in his party absolutely there's been pushback well it's interesting the there's been a very organized effort in the wine business to kind of get attention for this and then there's been a number of of a local wine shop has uh one of those boards outside the the, you know the blackboards that they put outside of of shops that says buy your wine now before the tariff (laughs) takes effect yeah no tariffs now um but interestingly there's been over a hundred Congress people who've weighed in against these tariffs on both sides of the of the aisle. Um, there's there's a lot of concern. You know, like uh, Susan Collins from Maine, who's a Republican, went was a part of a group that wrote a letter against the tariffs because Maine, for instance, does a lot of business with the Europe on the reverse. You know, selling lobster and so on to European um, food companies, and I think she's quite worried that there'll be a retaliatory tariff. You know, that will affect Maine's economy. So. You know, so it's it, it really is a bipartisan opposition to this idea of 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 these tariffs, um, and the in theory, the U.S. trade officer, um, trade representative, is going to come down with some kind of decision by February fourteenth. I mean, if I I'd say if anybody's concerned about it, the thing to do is contact your your representative and have them weigh in. Um, so people should write to their uh, their senators and. Congressional representatives? Absolutely, yeah. They, there was a period that where the it was open for public comments on the trade representative site. That has actually passed. So at this point, the best thing to do is contact your 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 senator, contact your congressperson, and say, I think these tariffs are you know, are crazy and are going to damage U.S. businesses and you know um, and U.S. you know the U.S. going to not help the U.S. economy actually and and, uh, and really mess up our choice of wine. <laughs> And make the people at Food and Wine magazine unhappy. There are a number of, uh, in fact, there are a number of magazines that specialize in uh, giving us information about wines and how they pair with foods and the like. Uh, They'll all be affected as well. Yeah, I I personally will be very unhappy if this goes through. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I'm I'm one lone voice, but I I will be an unhappy lone voice. Uh, The article that you wrote uh, had a, a very scary title. Why 2020 is looking dangerous for for wine lovers? You think we're going to get? Is what's your sense? Are we going to get past this? Um, I I I don't know. The fact that Trump and Macron came to an agreement about the much smaller digital tax issue gives me hope. Um, though this, the hundred percent tariff is a EU versus the U.S. question, not not just a France versus the U.S. But the fact that there was some negotiation and some agreement in that context may, leads me to at least believe they're talking, which is good. Um, but it's we're going to know quite soon what the, what the effect is. Well, if I were a French winemaker and I, I was faced with this and then faced with Brexit because the British were major yes. consumers of French wines, uh, 
uh, I would be a little scared. I would I would be very scared if I were a small French, especially one who imp- exported to those two countries. Absolutely, I think I think there's not as much information out there about it in Europe. Only there was there was a story just today or yesterday about a, a sort of French winemaker effort to to lobby Macron about this, which is, which is quite recent. Um, so there was there wasn't as much alarm as there as there probably should have been on their end. Ray Isles article. Why 2020 is looking dangerous for wine lovers is in the current issue of Food and Wine magazine, and it's been a great pleasure having you on our show. Thanks very much. Um, and the article's online, too. It's easy to find online. Okay. Uh, so thank you so much for having me. I very much enjoyed it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Barbara Kahn, who produced today's segment, to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopez at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopezAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows and, and link, leave comments. Uh, we hope you'll join us again on Monday when one of our regular contributors, Bob Henley, will be here to discuss his latest reporting on state and national politics. Have a great weekend. And we hope that you'll do your part to help WBAI financially uh, make us financially secure. And one way to do that is by becoming a BAI buddy. you could do that by going to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. Buddies are sustaining members, and uh, we hope that you can see a way to uh, becoming a sustaining member $10 a month or $15 a month or $20 a month or whatever uh, you're comfortable with. Uh, you can do that until you decide you don't want to do it anymore, so there, there's no, you're not trapped in anything. But it really does help us because it helps us to plan for the future and also know that six months from now, there'll still be money coming in. Again, BAI.org, WBAI.org, or call 516-620-3602. And thank you.